0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant James and for the letter that he wrote for our benefit, for our edification, that we might um, know more of uh, what you desire from your children. And we ask that uh, you would grant us um, guidance by your Spirit, um, that we would... Uh, look like who you have made us to be, who you have called us to be in Christ. And We pray that you'd begin that work now, that you'd stir our affections for Jesus, that we would desire to mimic him, to follow him, and that we would see his work done on our behalf and we would be motivated by joy. We uh, pray that your spirit would be present in this room. You'd open our eyes and our ears. Soften our hearts for your glory. we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When Pauline was a little girl, there was one summer when a, a watermelon seemingly miraculously grew outside her family's front door. No one had planted a watermelon there on purpose, and yet there it was. It was a mystery melon. After a full-scale investigation, her parents came to the conclusion that this watermelon came from a seed that had been expelled from the mouth of a little girl, eating a juicy red slice while sitting on the front steps one hot summer day. Some of the seeds spat out that summer day, fell on hard soil, and the squirrels came and took them away. Some of the seeds fell among the boxwood bushes where the soil was shallow. They grew up quickly, but were choked out by the bushes. But a single seed must have fallen on good soil, and it produced a melon in the most unusual of places, right outside their front door. The mystery surrounding this melon was always how this watermelon came to be planted outside their front door. The mystery was never what caused the watermelon to grow. No one ever thought this melon had materialized out of thin air. It had to be a seed, for that's how these things work. It says as much in the opening chapter of the Bible itself. God designed seeds to bring forth fruit according to their kinds. Plants don't come from loaves. They come from seeds. Watermelons produce watermelons. Cucumber seeds produce cucumbers. And right now, dandelion seeds are pushing up dandelions in your front yard. And the reason for all this talk about seeds producing fruit according to their kinds is because In his first chapter, James talks about God planting seeds in the souls of human beings in order to bring about children according to his kind. God is producing a harvest of people in this world that look like him, sound like him, think like him, and act like him. Godliness is the product of God planting his seed in us. Just as a watermelon seed must produce a watermelon, so also God's seed must produce godliness. Pauline's parents were able to to deduce from the watermelon growing on the surface of their front lawn that a watermelon seed had been planted there. So too, godliness exhibited in the life of the believer indicates a godly seed has been planted in that soul. The fruit is the sign and the product of the seed. It tells you what kind of seed was planted. No cucumber seed ever produced a watermelon. No human being ever gave birth to a kitten. That would certainly be most unnatural and quite distressing. Well, James feels the same way about favoritism in the life of the Christian. It's unnatural, distressing, a contradiction of the godly seed planted in the soul. In fact, in the first verse of chapter 2, James poses this rhetorical question that suggests favoritism reveals a lack of belief in Jesus. My brothers and sisters, he writes, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? The assumed answer is no. Favoritism betrays a lack of true belief in Jesus. Favoritism and and true faith are incompatible. True faith does not produce favoritism, and favoritism is not evidence that a godly seed has been planted in the soul. In the first 13 verses of of chapter 2, the passage Kelsey just read for you, James puts forth three reasons why favoritism is so unnatural and distressing when it shows up in the life of the one who claims to be a follower of Jesus. And we'll get to each of James's three reasons. But first, we must understand what James means by favoritism. The Greek word for for favoritism literally means to receive the face. Don't receive the face, James says. The idea conveyed in this word picture is judgment of people based on the face of things. Those external things one can see on the surface, like skin color or hair color. clothing, or facial features. Favoritism, therefore, is the assignment of value, the availability of love based on outward appearance. It's a behavior that James outright calls evil in verse 5, sin in verse 9, and incompatible with true belief in verse 2. In verses 2 through 4, James provides an example for you to illustrate what he means by favoritism. A wealthy person wearing fine clothes and gold jewelry walks into a church, and everyone notices him. They speak kindly to him. They say, please, and thank you. They call him sir, and they escort him to the best seat in the house, which is probably the back. But a poor person walks into the same church wearing clothes that are filthy and put off a foul odor, and no one notices him except to scoff, to give him an up-down and then turn away he's spoken to roughly and told to go stand out of the way, or if he's going to sit, to sit on the floor. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is a sort of behavior James is calling favoritism. It happens every day, and yet James is teaching us that it betrays a lack of true faith, true belief in Jesus, when it appears in the life of someone who would call themselves a Christian. This is a, a very serious accusation that James makes, and He provides three reasons why he treats favoritism so seriously. And the first reason is uh, that favoritism is contrary to the life of a Christian is because it's contrary to Christ himself. James states this in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, he writes, Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs in the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? What James is is not saying here is that God never chooses the rich in this world. But what he is saying is that God demonstrates an inclination towards the poor when deciding on whom to bestow the gift of faith and thus make heirs of his kingdom. In other words, Jesus does not assign value or love as the world does. And it's strange, it is to me at least, that we feel pressure to give the nicest gifts to the people who do not need them. But we give to the poor only the basic necessities and we feel they ought to be grateful for what they get. It's because we live in a world that's impressed with wealth and it assigns value according to how much or how little a person has. We want to be close to the people with much and keep our distance from those with little or none. And Jesus was the exact opposite. He sought out the poor. He wanted to be where they were because the poor are the faithful ones. They know their need of a redeemer. They suffer no delusions of being self-sufficient. They have nothing in this world. And so Jesus has given them himself. And he has promised them heavenly riches in the life to come. It's a just reversal of fortunes that we who possess much must seriously consider. Far from being a sign of blessing, our wealth, individually and nationally, puts our souls at risk. As James wrote in 1.10, we should live as though we had none. For only then we will persevere in our reliance upon Christ and be found in him at the end of life, when we will go to a place where none of our possessions can come with us. Jesus loved the poor, wanted to know the poor, to be friends with them. If the seed of true faith has been implanted in your soul, then ought we not to grow up looking like the God who put it there and gave us birth? Ought we not to look like Christ? Our favoritism is a a contradiction of our faith in Christ because it's a a contradiction of Christ himself. That's James's first argument against favoritism in the life of a Christian. His second reason is much more practical, showing favoritism for the rich just doesn't make any sense when their actions are governed by their own interests, even when dealing with Christians. In verse 6, James talks about those who are rich oppressing Christians and dragging them into court. and the particular situation of the people to whom James originally wrote is, is unclear. Yet we don't need to know the circumstances to understand what James is saying here. He's saying that the, the wealthy operate in their own interests through the exercise of power, of which they possess much. They stay on top of the world by eliminating and defeating any threat to their wealth or position. As such, they're, they're highly litigious, James would say. They show no restraint, no mercy, even for the people of God, their brothers and sisters according to the bond that Christ established through the cross. They treat the bonds of their own family's blood as stronger than the bonds of the family that was formed through Christ's blood. You see, Christ has made for himself a family out of people who would otherwise be strangers, and apart from Christ, have no reason to associate with one another. And on account of this unlikely union in Christ, we're called to care particularly for one another the rich disregard this union in Christ when it impinges upon the position they've worked hard to maintain. James says at the end of verse 6 that the rich are blaspheming the name of Christ by these actions. They're disregarding the name that they share with brothers and sisters when they oppress them and drag them to court. And so James asks, if this is how they treat you, then why do you pander to them? Why do you, why do you want to be their friends? He is Speaking like the father of a high school boy who's desperate for the friendship of the most popular guy at school. Right, the guy's a jerk to him. And despite being on the same athletic team, the guy won't even say hi to the son when they pass in the hallway. And so the father asks the son, "If this is how he treats you, then why do you care about him? Why do you want him as your friend?" Well, when James asks the question, "Why do you care?" with regards to the friendship of the wealthy, it becomes increasingly clear that the the pandering is because the Christians to whom James speaks have not realigned their values to to match with Christ. There's a certain slavery to money and status and power and comfort that easily creeps into the heart of all people, Christians being no exception. It's amazing what we'll do to get ahead in this world, only to find out that we've actually fallen behind in Christ's estimation. In verse 6, James is looking at what Christians are willing to endure because they're beholden to money and influence, and he scratches his head at our behavior. It just doesn't add up to him. It doesn't add up if you call yourself a Christian. Again, this is why he begins in verse 1 with the rhetorical question, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? The answer he presumes is no. His favoritism makes no practical sense for the one who truly believes in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's his second argument against favoritism in the life of the Christian. Finally, his his third argument, though, is that favoritism is a violation of God's law. Here, James calls the law the royal law, which he then quotes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you were listening closely during the Old Testament reading this morning, then you you would have heard this law listed out in Leviticus 19. It's called the royal law because Jesus the king quoted this law as one half of a summary of the entire law in Matthew 22, a, a lawyer approached Jesus and asked him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? To which Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your heart and with all your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment, and there's a second that's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. These two commandments, love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself, are a perfect summary of the law. It's no wonder James says in verse 8, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law. But James goes on to point out that partiality is a violation of it. Now, it might seem like only a minor violation of the law, but James won't hear any such justification. In verse 10, James reiterates what Jesus himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, that whoever breaks even the least commandment becomes guilty for all the law. In fact, James sets partiality alongside violations as serious as adultery and murder. The last of these, murder being different in degree, but not in spirit from favoritism. The poor person who entered the church was told to go stand over there out of the way. or if you're going to sit, sit on the ground. The message is that we would... Prefer if you were not here, which is the spirit of murder. Partiality, therefore, is a violation of the law. And more specifically, it's a violation of the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because the royal law, quoted in verse 8, insists that we love our neighbor as we ourselves hope to be loved. And it's safe to presume that every single one of us hopes that God does not judge us on our external appearances or behavior. For judgment based on those things would certainly mean condemnation. Instead, we have the law of liberty that James references in verse 12 to appeal to. It's our peace. The law of liberty was introduced by Jesus Christ when he fulfilled the law on our behalf. The law of liberty is that We're judged against the law, not based on our behavior, but based on Christ's. And he fulfilled the law perfectly. Even the smallest commandment was met with perfect obedience in him. But he did it for us. And having fulfilled the law, he swapped places with us. So that his obedience became ours and our condemnation became his. He was crucified and abandoned on the cross in our place. And now we're free in relation to the law as if we ourselves had perfected it, obeyed it. There's mercy for us in Christ when we stand guilty before the law. The obedience of Christ is our only hope and his perfection is what we plead when our consciences prick us and the devil points out the filthiness of our clothes that are stained by sin. The mercy we experience through the law of liberty is a relief, which if we're going to fulfill the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, must be extended by us to our neighbors. To fail in this regard is to be stingy and selfish, hypocritical with the grace of God. It's behavior that invites judgment rather than the mercy. It's to hoard the grace of God and so prove yourself unworthy of it. The mercy we enjoy in the law of liberty must be extended to every person we encounter if we're going to fulfill the royal law. There's love and there's grace that must be extended on account of Christ's perfection made available to the person standing before you, whoever they are, however they look. To quote the Apostle Paul, we must no longer consider a person according to the flesh, but approach them and deal with them according to the grace, mercy, and love that we ourselves enjoy in the law of liberty. I want to be clear here that James is not advocating for the adoption of moral relativism. He's not saying that all behavior is suddenly good in the eyes of God. There's still sin. He is, after all, spending this entire section pointing out the sin of favoritism and enumerating in a three-point sermon the particular errors of this behavior. He's not promoting moral relativism at all, but what he is doing is showing us a way for us to overcome our prejudices and our partiality in order that a genuine love for all people might be present in the church, regardless of the color of their skin, the language they speak, whether they are male or female, whether they can afford gold rings or only onion rings. It all begins with God, who did not consider us according to our external appearances, thanks be to God, but according to the perfection of Christ. In Christ, he's drawn near to us so that we might draw near to our neighbor. May the mercy and love of Christ be felt in this place. And may all who enter into our doors find a warm welcome from a people interested in them on account of Christ. My brothers and sisters, let us deal with one another in this way. May the mercy and love of Christ be yours always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.